The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information, visit ConsciousCompanyMedia.com backslash Women's Summit. That's ConsciousCompanyMedia.com backslash Women's Summit. Hey there, podcast listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. When you're doing something you've never done before, you want to listen to those who have been in the industry for years. And those are good, but sometimes those are wrong. And if you have that inner voice and that inner feeling for however it comes to you that says that that's just not the right move to make, trust your gut. Eve Carr Montpreuse sits at the helm of a thriving beauty and hair products company. Her company, Crayol Essence, has products on shelves at mainstream retailers. But the founding story behind Crayol Essence is definitely not mainstream. As a Haitian-American, Eve Carr grew up using her mother's supply of Haitian black castor oil to keep her hair and skin healthy. But as she got older, she realized that there was no way to get the oil in the United States. And thus, the idea for a new company was born, a beauty products company that would support female castor oil suppliers in Haiti. In this episode of World Changing Women, we'll hear Eve Carr's incredible founding story, as well as the secrets behind how she grew Crayole Essence into a mainstream player rooted in deep values. Welcome to World Changing Women. Welcome, welcome. We have another incredible episode of World Changing Women. Today, we have an unbelievable guest with us, someone I am so excited to chat with. Uh, She actually was a guest at our previous World Changing Women Summit, and her story just blew me away. So I am so excited to share it with a broader audience. I am so delighted to welcome you to the show today. Welcome, Eve Carr. Thank you so much, Megan. I'm excited and feel privileged to be here. I can't wait. So let's dive right in. Can you just talk to me a little bit about how the concept for this incredible company came about? What were the original sparks of inspiration for this? Sure. So Quirrell Essence makes natural and ethical beauty products from Haiti. I started the company after having what I call a hair catastrophe. (laughs) I was going to an event. I was single looking for a husband. And I had this big kinky fro, so I wanted to straighten it uh, in order to lure my suitor. (laughs) As you do. (laughs) You know, my hairdresser did a fantastic job. The good news is I found a husband. He's currently my COO. But the bad news is when I washed my hair the next day, it all fell out. Yes. So one thing when you get a haircut, it's another thing when you just lose your hair and you're watching it you're watching it in the um, shower. So like any good millennial, the first thing I did was cry. (laughs) And then the next thing that came to mind is that there was an oil that my mom used to use that solved all of our problems growing up. 
I called her immediately. I could not remember the name. And she told me, oh, you mean l'huile masquiti, which in English is black castor oil, Haitian black castor oil. I lived in Philadelphia at the time, so I dashed to the store and thought for sure I would be able to find the oil because there's a large immigrant population there. Unfortunately, what I found on shelves were castor oils that had hexen, bleach, and other additives in it. I begged my mom to send me some from her Haiti stash uh, because, you know, immigrants normally, when they go to their home country, they bring back the goods, and because it's so rare, they really don't want to share. <laughs> so she sent me the, the black castor oil, and I was so happy to receive it and was so nostalgic about the smell, the aroma, and everything that I remember about the oil growing up. And I jokingly said to her, what if I started a business where you could get Haitian black castor oil all over the world? But I was joking. I was at the University of Pennsylvania in the School of Government. She laughed and then she said, you know what? I think that's a great idea. She said, just imagine what we would be able to do. A, women would no longer have to sneak the oil into the country and um, be you know, subjected to losing the oil if it's you know, over 3.4 ounces or having it break in your suitcase. B, she said, think about who has to make the black castor oil. When we thought about the fact that farmers have to plant the castor seeds and that making black castor oil is a time-honored tradition that women predominantly make. The fact that we would be exporting out of the country and that we would be showing people a very different side of Haiti, the beautiful, lush, magnetic side of the country. You marry that with the fact that I am a complete product junkie. I love luxury oils and beauty products. Anything that makes me feel and, and look amazing, I want that. And it's with those two things in mind that I started Crayolas. I love that. One of the parts that I love about that so a lot of the entrepreneurs and founders that I talk to, when they bring their business idea to one of their parents, their parents think they're absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. And the fact that your mom actually was the one who was encouraging you to do this, I just, I absolutely love that. Is she still heavily supportive of the company today? Absolutely. She's probably my biggest supporter and my biggest critic. So there's <laughs> always more in her mind for me to do. And I, I think the other part that people usually find a little shocking or comforting is that my mom as the woman in our household is the one who takes more risk and encourages us to do the things that we are passionate about and that we want to do. Whereas ironically, my father is actually the one who's more reserved and is more calculated and had lots of hesitation about me leaving a secure, you know, six-figure job. You know, the, our parents left Haiti for us to have great opportunities. And here I was going back to our home country to start a business. Mm, I love it. And thus creating your own opportunity. So I want to talk a little bit about that point um, that all founders have of when you transition from it being just an idea and something that you're interested in and the spark has been ignited and you start thinking about it and you start continuing to think about it. And then when you actually move into the place where you decide, I'm actually going to do this, I'm going to try to start a business. Can you mm -hmm. talk to me about that time, what it looked like? What was the timeline on that? Sure. So in the initial, I did not put a timeline to this, right? It's like, oh, oh my God, I'm going to create Haitian black castor oil. I had to first figure out 
what do you call it in English? You know, how does it grow? I needed to sit with the elders and understand the processing. So the first thing I did is I asked my mom, would she go with me to Haiti? And could she start just researching and having folks talk to me? And that's what I did. The first thing is I wanted to delve deep and amass as much information as possible in order to familiarize myself with the process of the oil. And and that was very eye-opening because in going to Haiti, here I was, and I had not been back to the country or stayed long periods of time in the country, and I had to win trust of the women who produce the, the oil in order for them to share the process with me because that's considered sacred. The second thing is I had to now start to understand how business was done in you know, in my second home country, because I went to school in the States and essentially re-immersing myself, if you will, in how business is done in country. And then I think third, I really wanted to ensure that this cultural and time-honored tradition, that I married it with science. So I know that black castor oil, culturally speaking, we've used it whenever we're sick, whenever you have um, scalp issues. If you are in body pain, everyone pulls out a bottle of Haitian black castor oil, but there was never any science to talk about why it works. So I also started looking into the science and found out that you know black castor oil is one of the only oils that has ricinoleic acid, which is why it penetrates, moisturizes, and provides vitamins to the scalp and skin so well. So, so really, I delved into the research. After doing the research, the next thing that I needed to do to continue the momentum and get to action was figure out the name of the company. And I'm sure you've heard stories for founders where that could be really difficult. And I, I remember distinctively the day that we chose the name of the company. I had written a bunch of names down in, in my notebook. That's the first thing I usually do when I have a new project. I buy a notebook just for it. And I, I wrote down the things that I felt were important for the company to embody. And I'm in the car and I'm like, well, what's typically authentically, uniquely Haitian? And as I'm listing things, I, I said the word Creole, which is the language that we speak in Haiti. And it's spelled with a K, not a C. And Stefan said Creole. And I kept saying it. We're like, Creole, that's one of the most authentic things about uh, Haiti. And then we're talking about the essence of the country and how the oil is part of the essence of, of our community. And he said Creole essence. And I said Creole essence. And then we just kind of screamed in the car. If anyone saw us, they probably thought we were crazy. <laughs> but it just felt right because it married so much of what the company embodies in terms of culture, in terms of it being a mixture of people and meaning. Because Creole, it, is, it means mixture as well. So, so that's how we came up with the name. And from there, I can start to do things like register the company officially and get an EIN number and open up a bank account. Things that, I mean, we might take for granted in the States or in Canada or in developed countries, it, t it took us, you know, like a year and a half to do that on the Haiti side. But here in the States, I was able to have an official business in three days once I figured out the name and felt good about what it is we were going to deliver. So how long was it after, in terms of when you registered the company, you came up with the name of the company, you've done all this research, how long was that from the time that you had the idea for the company? Mm -hmm. From the idea of the company, I did that in about 
two or three months. But what I think <laughs> was interesting is that it took about a year and a half to two years before we actually launched the business. Mm-hmm. And this is because A, we had an earthquake in Haiti in 2010. We had the earthquake that devastated and killed thousands of people. And it was such a traumatic time for all. I had just left Haiti before the earthquake occurred, but it became immediately about relief efforts. So, you know, we raised a few hundred thousand dollars. We were sending medical supplies. We were sending doctors in. It was about just making sure people could live. But I remember being exhausted because, you know, this type of relief effort, this is something we were working on for a year. And my mom looked at me and she said, it's very cute that you've raised a few hundred thousand dollars, which I think it's funny for her to say as if that was that easy. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's very cute that you've done that and you're doing interviews and that's good. That's really good. She said, but what happens when Anderson Cooper and all those folks with their cameras are no longer there? Once they have left our country, how are these women that you had started to work with supposed to feed themselves and take care of themselves? And she was essentially imparting on me to focus on long-term relief now, to switch my focus and think about long-term development for the country versus short-term aid and kind of quick bandages. I mean, they're important, that's necessary, but she wanted me to think long-term. And when she said that, it clicked in my brain that we needed to get the company back up and running. And we did so after that in about four months. First, I love your mom. Don't tell her that she'll get a big head. I, I always try to keep her from hearing any of these stories when I recount them because she'll get a bigger head. <laughs> well, I think she's fantastic. Um, so I'm curious about that time then, like a year and a half mm-hmm. in, and then you decide you're really going to go for it and launch the company. How did you get those first products on shelves? Where did you get sold? Like, how did that process look for you? Sure. So Stefan, my co-founder and life partner, had started working on the designs, right? We were doing these things in-house because it's, we did not have any outside funding. Creole Essence was purely funded through my savings. So I joke sometimes that I went to work so that I can work on the company. And, you know, we, bought, we purchased a few bottles. We purchased a few labels. And the first thing we thought was, how are we going to get the oil into the country? So we did the most basic thing, which is for me to put it in my suitcase and bring a few gallons of oil here. And then we fulfilled it um, in our garage and we had our prototype. And I recall the first day that we launched our website, right? Because we decided we were gonna go direct to consumer and, and, and just try this out online. And the website is up, we send out an email and then we close our eyes and cross our fingers and pray that, you know, we see a few folks who aren't family and friends who, who purchase. And, you know, we wait a few hours and we start seeing emails come through, which, which is like the biggest thing in the world as an entrepreneur when you decide to release your baby into the world because it's an expression of who you are, you believe in it, and to, to make sure that, you know, you're not crazy, that there are other people who want this product as well. And that's when we um, knew that, okay, we do have a business when we didn't recognize some of the names that were coming through the web portal for purchases. 
I, I still viscerally remember the first check that we got in the P.O. box. It was from Badger Bomb. It was for $350 for advertising. And I remember I like have a picture my my husband took of me like holding the check in the post office box and crying. I, it's like it's like no other feeling on earth. And I, I also love people think that entrepreneur life is very glamorous. I love the idea of you going to Haiti, filling your suitcase, coming back, filling it in the garage, putting up a website, you guys coming up with your own branding and then just starting to sell it. And I'm so curious Mm -hmm. about where do you think those first customers who weren't friends and family, where do you think they were coming from? Were they referrals or how did you get the word out to these people? Sure. So I think one of the things that worked to our advantage is that I've always worked in with several communities and been a community organizer. So I created relationships with people that lasted uh, over the years. And I think what that did is first, you know, now we know that email is gold. So I had this listserv of emails of organizations that I had worked with over the years. And I think the power of referral and word of mouth. So yes, one person might've worked with me uh, four or five years ago, they might trust, okay, I I know that, you know, this is an honest person. I want to give this product a try. And then they would also forward it on to other people. So there was a lot of forwarding and word of mouth that really helped in our early days and still till today for folks to take a chance on a new brand, especially when it comes to something as personal to their hair and skin routine. Absolutely. Oh, it's like genius. So I have to ask you about the growth of the company and mm-hmm. and from those early days of the, the first few customers that you saw coming in on that day one to where you are now, how, how has it been? It's been quite a journey. We have learned so much. And I I think for us, the fact that not only are we on the U.S. side marketing a product, we also have to remember on the Haiti side, we're manufacturers. So there's a whole other side of this business that we're in, and we didn't realize it, right? And I think that's the beauty of entrepreneurs, sometimes the naivete. And I always joke that I just wanted some black castor oil to help promote my hair growth and then to share it with other women. And instead, I ended up building an entire supply chain for a product in a country. That was not my original goal. You know, when we went into Haiti, there was no formal farming occurring of the castor seeds. There were no methodologies or rule books that were written, if you will, to scale up in creating the oil. There was no one to tell us who to best use to export the product and you know what are the FDA regulations. All that we spent lots of time learning and arduously making mistakes and recovering in order to ensure that you know our production is stable. And to now where you know we uh, launched at Whole Foods nationwide almost a year ago which was really exciting for us and uh, was a testament of the quality of our product as well as it helped legitimize us to being uh, touted by Sephora as the next generation beauty industry leader and to even you guys recognizing me as one of the top business conscious leaders, all those things um, would not have occurred or scaling would not have occurred if we didn't every day just wake up and, and think about what our end goal is and 
uh, again, just continue to work arduously to continue to have momentum. Mm. Congratulations. Uh, just like warms my heart to hear these stories. So now that you have the benefit of hindsight, I'm really curious if there's anything that you would have done at the beginning and setting up the company. Is there anything you would have done differently? Yes. So remember when I was talking a bit about the process of going to Haiti, focusing on long term, I mean, on the short term aid, we had put the the company on hold, even when we came back and decided to, you know, really start to ramp up, we started to get stuck in the details, you know, get perfectionitis. The label's not right. The bottle's not good enough. We spent so much time belaboring perfection. And in hindsight, a friend of mine, she she was actually the one who kind of pushed us to, to launch the website. She looked at me and Stefan and said, what you perceive to be your 50% is somebody else's 100%. Just start. Mm. And I wish we did that. We would have been a different company, but we would have scaled a lot quicker, I think. I think I'd have a lot more things that I could list off that we had accomplished, but we really would have truly had first movers advantage. I mean, we still do in in certain other ways. So I think in hindsight, the main thing that I would say is just start. Do your research, do your homework, but keep taking steps forward. Because ironically, the thing that was holding us back, we we ended up rebranding last year. And if you saw what we looked like before to now, you'd be like, those are two different companies and we love it. And, and our customers just love the sort of luxurious feel and the purposefulness behind our packaging and our website and the experience that we provide. But since we were going to change it anyway, had I known, I wouldn't have spent so much time focused on perfection. <laughs> That's always one of my, my key pieces of advice for people who have an idea is I'm always like, just go... F- Jump faster than you think you yes, want to. Yes. Like, just go. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing I would say, if I may, because I think it's so important for entrepreneurs to think about, is that uh, I, I had a staff member once say this. And at the time, she was the only one who said it. And she said, not all money is good money. And she said her mom used to tell her that. And I didn't understand at the time when I had certain advisors who said, really think about where you get your financing from. So this was like later on after, you know, we, we bootstrapped and that for social entrepreneurs, they truly need to think twice about taking development money in the initial early periods because you need patient capital when you're trying to innovate, when you are trying something that hasn't been done, when you are doing things that require rapid change and where you get your money from could either hinder or have you veer away from what you need to in order to ensure that you stabilize your business, meet your social mission, but also make sure that the business is stable. I'm so glad you brought this up because that was what I was hoping to talk to you about next was Mm -hmm. the financing piece of this. So I heard you say that you guys started by using your savings, um, the the traditional bootstrapping story, but how did you finance Crayol Essence from there? Mm -hmm. So after ensuring that I had enough saved and I gave us a year for our personal expenditures because I quit my job, got my master's at Cornell. Creole Essence was my thesis. Uh, Stefan also quit his job. So both of us quit our job. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, we had the basics to live. 
it's it's actually better than most entrepreneurs. So I'm like, (laughs) wow, you guys really thought ahead. (laughs) Yes, I wanted to make sure we could live because it's really hard to help others live if you can't eat. And then I had set aside a certain amount just to get a proof of concept, to show people it was real. Because when we first started writing our business plans, people did not get it. They were just like, what? And once our first angel investor, it was at a trade show where they saw how we were mobbed at the trade show. Like everyone left their conference sessions to come try and buy products. And then they said, let's talk afterwards because they had turned us down before. But we had something real and they could see the reaction of folks. And then we learned the value of having kind of your minimum viable product, your early prototype. From there, we there were three angel investors who invested in the company, but also invested in me. I had one angel investor says, okay, you know, this makes sense from a business perspective, but I invest in entrepreneurs who are not going to give up, who have commitment, and I've watched you diligently focus on this and get advice. Afterwards, it was the larger sums of money came from grants. And we did a a partnership with Kiva, which was amazing, where they helped us raise $100,000 in about four hours, which was insane because it was the first time that they raised that amount of money for a social enterprise. So they had never tried. None of us knew what was going to happen. And that really also taught us about the power of people and how important it is to be connected to a community because these were individuals giving $25, $50, $100 to invest in us. And those were the early financing options for Crayola Essence, angel investors, development funds through grants, as well as low interest loans from organizations like Cuba. Mm, That's fantastic. Would you say that you feel like the angel investors that you brought in were impact investors or were they more on the traditional investing side? They were more on the traditional investing side, which has really helped because I had the opportunity to work with both the traditional investor side and development folks. It really helps now to shape our strategy on who we think our investors should be, given the experience that we had working with both of them, which was an an interesting mix to say the least, because yes, we all speak English, but both sides are looking at the company through different lenses with different goals and don't necessarily speak the same business language. Hmm. That's a very important nuance. So I'm curious about what you're struggling most with right now as a business owner. Yeah. So the fun thing about scaling is that it opens up a whole new can of worms that, you know, you, you, you think that they're going to be really easy to deal with. And I think for us, as we scale and, you know, now that we have, three or four years under our belt, as I look at the task of head and what our goals are, it's so crystal clear that we have to have the most amazing team ever. (laughs) Because, you know, we're we're working in two countries where we essentially have two businesses we're running, one manufacturing and the other creating, you know, hair, skin, and body products. And having the right team is essential to growing and scaling. So I think that's what keeps me up at night the most right now is just thinking about, am I putting people in the right places? Am I picking the right people? And then am I putting the right people in the right places? The perpetual struggle. (laughs) Um, What is your favorite thing about what you're doing right now? My favorite thing about what I do is that no day is the same. 
I could go from being on a farm and my jeans in boots and climbing through mud and really learning with the farmers to being in a factory where I'm looking at processes and working with my team on how do we create the best product to being at a fancy dinner with Bill Clinton to being with a group of women who are crying and being expressive about what happened when they didn't feel beautiful and us walking through with them what products that they could use and also encouraging them and helping to focus on their self-esteem to being behind the computer and because we also focus on e-commerce being part of the digital community. So I feel like no day is the same and I'm constantly learning and to me that's a blessing and an opportunity and I, I feel privileged to be able to take a chance, work on my dream, focus on these different communities that I'm a part of, and just every day try again. And so speaking of learning, and you might have brought these up already, but I'm curious if you have, just looking back on this entire time of building this unbelievable business, do you have kind of a top two to three lessons that you've learned so far? Top two to three lessons. Trust your gut. It's a simple thing. People have probably heard it before. It's really difficult to implement because when you're doing something you've never done before, especially if you're an A-type or more factual person, you need like building blocks and data or and you wanna listen to those who have been in the industry for years. And those are good, but sometimes those are wrong. And if you have that inner voice and that inner feeling or that whisper, however it comes to you, that says that that's just not the right move to make, even though conventional wisdom says it is, trust your gut. Because I have found in my experience, 10 times out of 10, my gut is always right, even if I could not utilize words to express why I was having that sentiment. The second thing that I would say that I've learned and continue to learn because it's an ongoing process is that self-care is not a luxury. It's a necessity as an entrepreneur. You are being faced with constant decision-making. There's stress, you know, everything from, are you going to make payroll to dealing with how do I communicate to my, my customers? How do I communicate with my investors and boards? Am I having a strong enough social impact? Am I making sure that the business on both ends from the social to the financial is doing what it needs to? There's a lot of stress on social entrepreneurs because you have, you know, triple bottom line means triple bottom problems. (laughs) (laughs) So the only way to, to not burn out and get fatigued is that you have to have a process where you learn who you are, understand your triggers, and begin to put routines and things in place that keep you healthy because you will not be as successful or not stay successful if you haven't done the self-mastery that's needed to go through the tough times. So speaking of that, of self-care, of your routine, I'm curious about very specifically your daily routine and Mm -hmm. what practices that you have that help keep you grounded and really help you to take care of yourself. Sure. It's funny. I am not the traditional or when people speak to me, they're like, oh, you're not a self-help person. But I really feel like, you know, I am a self-help junkie because I I need the help. 
<laughs> so I have a few different things that I've done over the years that are my try and true. So like today when we first started talking and I'm like, I'm having such a good Wednesday. And I, I, there was a time I decided to get a life coach and I was feeling extremely stressed out. And obviously I know academically speaking or in my mind that you're supposed to have routine and do X, Y, and Z. And in my discussion with her, she just pointed out how my, my schedule was just completely out of whack and that, you know, I really needed to go back to some of my routines. So I, she essentially made me accountable for taking care of myself. So in the morning, for instance, a great morning for me, if I wake up at three or four in the morning, which is usually a good time for me to wake up, especially if I have a lot to do, but waking up that early makes me feel like I own my time. So if I want to journal, if I want to go for a run, which I do go for runs at that time, if I need to watch a great session of Oprah Super Soul Sunday, <laughs> you know, or maybe I just need to watch a bit of TV about something that relaxes me. That morning period is mine and I need to own it. And the way I start my day is a really good indicator of how I'm going to end my day. Um, so starting early and whether that day I need more spiritual work for myself or I, I just need a break or I just need to plan my day. Whatever it is, owning it that morning is really helpful for me. Another thing that I've also found to be important for me, I am a podcast junkie. Yay, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> All about the podcast for me right now, especially when you're traveling a lot. And let's say I'm just too tired, of, you know, reading at that point in the day is not what I want to do. Then listening to great podcasts are saviors for me because everything from like impact theory, which I heard this morning, which just, oh my God, gave me so much life and being able to listen to other people's stories and them articulate what they do to help them get to the next level or to hear about their challenges so that I don't feel like I'm alone. And, you know, I'm just on this Island by myself doing everything wrong. These are all things that really help me. And then really good people. And it's not, you know, I have my business crew, my business ladies, and, you know, what we have a WhatsApp group. I'm on several WhatsApp groups, <laughs> you know, where we're sharing different things with each other. I have my Haiti group because there are certain challenges. If you're not working in a developing country, you probably would not understand when we say, oh, there's a protest today. I can't get my shipment out. So I have that group. And then I also have a group of longtime friends who don't take me that seriously and who make fun of me. And what keeps me most grounded is when I go see them and I'm babysitting. There's something about babysitting and dealing with kids that just reminds you that they are the thing that's important, your meetings and everything else. They can wait and you can take a moment and just play with them and just answer their questions. And I have always found kids to be really grounding for me. Mm. So I'm going to take that theme of kids and I'm going to ask you to imagine like mm -hmm. 18 years from now, one of those kids comes to you and says, oh my gosh, Eve Carr, I have the best idea for a business. <laughs> what type of advice would you give them or what questions would you ask or what are like the kind of first things that you do when someone that you love comes to you and says that they want to start something? Mm-hmm. Really good question. So the first thing I ask them is what problem they're solving and for who. And I find that there are people who are very clear on that. They may not be able to tell you the margins 
and what their marketing strategy is and any of those other things. But if they can clearly articulate and explain what problem they're solving and for who, I'm like, okay, you've got something that you just need to pursue and continue to find out about and grow. Uh, if the person's not able to articulate the problem and, and who has it, that's when I you know, get into deeper questions and usually would say, find out what problem you're solving. Because when you're solving a problem for you and others, this is where I feel like the magic happens. This is where you, know, you become unstoppable. And I think um, Les Brown says this, when you help others achieve their dreams, they will help you achieve yours. And that's been really true for us. And that's because we're helping farmers and women achieve a dream. We are helping the woman who could not find products for her texture hair or who's dealing with thinning or who has dry skin. And, you know, some of it sounds very, I don't know, like it's just cosmetic. But think about it. This also goes into illness for those who have rosacea, who have eczema and confidence, confidence for male or female it, to be able to deal with the larger issues you have in the world, you need to feel good about yourself. So taking care of yourself is important for that. So helping folks achieve their dreams, you're able to help ensure that you have a, a, a crowd of supporters who will help you achieve yours. So one thing I'm curious about right now is what is the most important thing in your life? Is it your business? Uh, that is the baby. I have to say when, say, oh, when people ask me, you know, you know, oh, who are the kids or how do you have kids? I said, yes, her name is Crayle Essence. She's four. <laughs> uh, this really is our baby. But I think as we've gotten further into the business, the most important thing to me now, or I guess the space that I'm in, because we've given so much to the business, is my life partner and business partner, Stefan. Because when you see someone commit so much to your baby and to you, it really does something to you. There's so much sacrifice that we both have had to make. So he's definitely one of the most important things in my life. And my close family and friends, I just appreciate them so much because prior to having the business, I'm very much a, I can do it all. I can do it. I can do it. You know, the kids were like, I can do it. And there's nothing more humbling when you have a dream and you have something that really requires others to help you and you see who shows up for you. So to me right now in this stage and phase of where I am in life or mindset, they are more important. And final question. I'm asking this to everyone because uh-huh. I, I need, I don't know, I need some inspiration. Uh, we're living in some some interesting times right now mm-hmm. um and i'm curious what is giving you hope it's giving me hope love that question it's such a good one hmm. you know i have to go back to some of the podcasts and some of the things that i'm feeding my spirit and energy and be- like you said there's so much going on in the world right now that could be discouraging I've honestly limited my news consumption, which drives Stefan crazy <laughs> because I want to be on a positivity, energy, hopeful high. Uh, you know, when I see a customer or we call those who purchase from us and everyone we work with, they're part of our tribe. When I get an email 
that says, you don't understand how proud I am to walk into a Whole Foods and see a Haiti, authentically Haiti made product on the shelf. Mm. Because most of the time, people only know the negative things about us. And they're like, it's as if it's my business. And we get those emails all the time. And each of those emails, I kid you not, it does not get old. When I really want to throw in the towel, it gives me more hope because it's almost like a, a nod from the universe to say, keep going, you're on the right track, you're, you're gonna get there. As each person sends something personal and a story about what has happened. The last thing that, you know, in terms of giving me hope, I just wrote it on our blog. We were on the Home Shopping Network about three or four weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. And I was absolutely petrified. <laughs> And I, I, you know, I account in the blog that, you know, Stefan says, babe, you're going to be great. You're going to be awesome. Just tell our story, talk about what the products do, all that stuff. And I'm thinking, easy for you to say. I can't see who's at the other end of the screen. I have to like convey all this messaging in a very brief amount of time. And what if, you know, this person hasn't dealt with hair loss or needs moisture or, or doesn't care about luxury and scents and and all that. So like my self-talk was going into overdrive. I was like, what if I forget how to speak English and I start speaking Creole <laughs> or I trip? I'm like, it's live TV. And, you know, once I calmed down and I started off with the on-air host, in about 10 minutes, she starts saying we're sold out of the first product. Mm -hmm. Then we're sold out of the second. And within the hour, she's like, we're sold out of everything. And Stefan and I look at each other and we're like, what? Excuse me? <laughs> Come again? <laughs> I was like, is, is this a joke? No, they're like, you're sold out of everything. And what I love is on the Home Shopping Network, it's a diversity of people who are purchasing products, right? And the thing is that we found a core problem that all types of people could relate with, that people inherently want to also do good and help others. So that resonated. So to see the excitement from, you know, the producers to even getting emails from folks who purchased on TV to say, really loved what you had to say in your segment, even though I couldn't see folks, we were able to connect. And that gives me so much energy, so much hope that there is a way for us to change the world as people. Yay! <laughs> oh, that just like makes me so happy hearing brands like yours having a tremendous amount of success. Talking to people like you gives me inspiration and also helps me keep going myself. So I just thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your story, for all the work that you do in the world. You are a beacon of light and I'm so excited to share your story with all the incredible listeners out there. So thank, thank you so you. much. Please do not stop. What you guys do is amazing. And you've heard about how obsessed I am with podcasts and things that feed my spirit. And I think the fact that you do that through written word and now through podcasts, is it's life-changing so thank you for keeping us going oh, <laughs> the world-changing women's podcast is brought to you by conscious company media if you like what you're hearing we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing rating or leaving a review of this podcast as a reminder don't forget to follow us on twitter at wcwpod a huge thanks to tammy simon and her crew over at sounds true media also to Nina Bernardin, our incredible podcast manager, and our podcast partners on this, StoryPop. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman, and thank you 